Welcome to the podcast series of the Notre Dame Program of Constitutional Studies. The Program of Constitutional Studies here at Notre Dame fosters research and teaching on the philosophical principles of constitutional government and the American constitutional tradition. Enjoy today's podcast. All right. Good morning. Uh, good morning to all my students uh, in, uh, in my class, Political Philosophy in Higher Education, which is our normal class time and uh, uh, hence the reason for maybe a slightly unusual Zoom meeting time of 9.30 in the morning. Uh, but uh, this group of students have been reading a wide array of works in the history of political philosophy that touch on the theme of education, the purpose and the end of education. And as we approach the end of our semester, I could think of no better uh, both book and conversation to have uh, than with uh, Anthony Cronman of Yale Law School whose 2007 book, Education's End, Why Our Colleges and University Have Given Up, Universities Have Given Up on the Meaning of Life, uh, remains in my mind one of the most compelling, uh, challenging, interesting, um, and I think um, stimulating discussions of the purpose and end of education. Uh, it's a book I've been teaching regularly in versions of this class since its publication in 2007. Uh, and one that I think has just simply, as uh, my, my experience with this group of students attests, has not ever failed to stimulate uh, really interesting probing um, and I think very rewarding conversations. For many years, I've been hoping to get uh, Professor Cronman to campus to talk with a group of my students about this book. And uh, in the age of pandemic, this has proven to be both easier, but also not quite the not quite the encounter and meeting that I'd hoped for. Uh, so I hope that this is just a promissory note to a future visit to our campus, Tony. <laughs> Tony Cronman is the Sterling Professor of Law at Yale University Law School. He is a former Dean of the Law School and teaches in the areas of bankruptcy, contracts, jurisprudence, social theory, and professional responsibility. And in addition to the courses that Professor Cronman teaches at the law school, he also teaches undergraduate classes in literature philosophy, history, and politics as part of the directed studies program at Yale. And for those of you with Notre Dame connections, this is a program that uh, is not unlike uh, the curriculum uh, with the uh, PLS program in liberal studies, a kind of great books focused program. And I think uh, really uh, speaks to uh, the, the, kinds of, the kinds of themes that uh, Professor Cronman discusses in his book. Among the books he's published then is the book we're discussing today, Education's End, but also uh, Max Weber, Contracts, Cases and Materials, Lost Lawyer, a book I hadn't been familiar with, but I wanna read now. Maybe we'll find uh, Professor Garnett, uh, uh, who's I know is tuned in, Lost Lawyer. And his latest book, <laughs> Confessions of a Born Again Pagan, which was published with Yale University Press in 2016. Professor Cronman received his BA from Williams College and his PhD and JD, uh, PhD in philosophy, JD, uh, uh, from Yale University, where he now hangs his hat. Professor Cronman, thank you for joining us virtually today. Uh, and what we'd like to do is uh, begin uh, with just giving you the opportunity to talk a little bit about the book. Our students have read the book, but for those who may not have read it, uh, just to provide a summary, and then we'll uh, hope have ample time for questions, conversation, and discussion with you. Thanks for joining us today. Wonderful, thank you so much, Patrick, for the, the warm introduction. Of course, I wish I could be there in a person. Uh, I've learned to live with Zoom as a, uh, 
uh, as, a, as a second best, um, but I'm uh, thrilled to be with you this morning, uh, even if only virtually. I'm, I'm grateful to all of you in the class for spending the time with my book and with my ideas. It's uh, immensely flattering and I'm eager to hear your thoughts and reactions and uh, criticisms. Of course, one of the advantages of a virtual interaction like this is that if you disagree so violently that you decide you want to throw something at me, you'd have to heave it about a thousand miles east to hit me here on the little island off the New England shore where I'm sitting at the moment. I thought I might begin in a very brief and summary way by mentioning two of the great and lasting pleasures that I have experienced over the course of my life as a student and teacher in the pursuit of humanistic studies, and then briefly uh, identify two of what I believe are the principal threats to, um, uh, to study of this kind. One I emphasize in the 2007 book, which you've read. Uh, another um, is front and center in a new book I published a year and a half ago called The Assault on American Excellence. And I'll explain a bit more in a minute. And I'll try to keep all of this brief under 10 minutes so that uh, we can reserve the lion's share of our time for a back and forth. The pleasures of humanistic study. From the moment that I first began to dimly think about um, where I fit in to the larger scheme of things, I realized that I was <clears throat> a participant in an adventure that had been underway for a very, very long time before I came into it. First, uh, as an American, and then secondly, even more broadly, as a, a late-born uh, child in the civilization of the West, which stretches back not just centuries, but millennia in time. And I became curious to know where I fit in to this uh, long-running film. What position as a latecomer do I occupy? What were the struggles and contests that had preceded me? I wanted to have a better idea of the civilization into which it was my fate to have been born. And the humanities, philosophy, literature, uh, the classics, history, these have helped me over the course of a lifetime, really, to a better, richer understanding of the tradition that I have inherited. Um, not a perfect understanding. There are so many blank spots for me still, but the joy of humanistic study for me has been in part the joy of discovering where I fit into this larger and longstanding tradition of action and uh, thought. That has 
sharpened my own understanding of what my responsibilities are looking ahead as a temporary custodian of this tradition to see that it is carried forward in the, the best uh, uh, and most responsible way. And what my duties looking backward are toward the past. I might call that my obligation of piety to those who have come before to see that their work was not in vain. So that's been one of the great pleasures of humanistic study for me, discovering my civilization what it has been and what it might be. The second is a deepening acquaintance with what for lack of a better phrase, I might call the human condition. Every discipline of study, physics, uh, economics, biology, history, philosophy, uh, is a product of human thought and uh, achievement. They are all human works. But the humanities put a special focus, a spotlight on the human condition itself in a way these other disciplines do not or do not to the same degree. In the humanities, the question is always, what does it mean to be a human being? To, uh, to inhabit the human condition. Now, there is no single definitive answer to that, but the question lies at the heart of humanistic study and is distinctive of it. In pursuing it, I have come again and again and again into contact, uh, communication, uh, with uh, thinkers and voices and ideas from the long dead past who have been as perplexed by their human being as I am by mine. And I have listened to what they have had to say and my own sense of what it means to be human at all has been enriched and deepened by that encounter. Um, so uh, that for me has been a second continuing pleasure of ongoing the discovery, the enrichment of my sense of the human thing, of the human situation or the human condition, which is the perennial topic of all humanistic work in all of the different disciplines that I've mentioned. Okay, let me shift now from pleasures to threats. I, I've described <clears throat> in a somewhat personal way, perhaps, the, um, uh, the experiences that have been for me the most important in my own course of humanistic uh, uh, study. What are the threats that I perceive to this uh, pursuit? Well, there are two. Uh, the first I discuss at some length in education's end, and it arises from the introduction and growing influence of an educational model that first took hold in American colleges and universities in the latter part of the 19th century. 
with the importation of the originally German model of research science, the idea uh, 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 took hold <clears throat> and, and acquired increasing legitimacy and prestige that the first and most important responsibility of academics, of teachers in colleges and universities is to advance knowledge in their particular disciplines by adding their small bit to an ever growing pile of insight, uh, discovery, uh, and, uh, and criticism. And uh, this has been, a, of course, a, a very uh, fruitful model. It has produced, contributed to the production of the enormous bodies of learning in every discipline across the board in the world of, of higher education. It puts the emphasis on novelty, on, uh, on originality, and it emphasizes the importance of a specialized division of labor in which each academic is left to cultivate his or her own small portion of the vineyard. If you believe that the primary responsibility of a college or university teacher is to, uh, is to produce and publish valuable research, specialization follows almost inevitably as a requirement. This ideal, the research ideal, has of course taken hold in the humanities as it has in every other discipline. But to the extent it has, it has eclipsed, it has put in a shadow of, um, of, of, of declining importance and value. The uh, conception of humanistic study that I began by describing a few minutes ago. The idea that uh, the student engaged in such uh, reading and reflection is meant to come to a deeper, fuller understanding of his or her civilization and of the human condition more generally. That remains true to a degree, but in the humanities, it is overshadowed by this other research-oriented conception of the value of humanistic work. And with the growing uh, authority of the research ideal, older notions of refinement, cultivation, uh, the deepening uh, uh, of, of, of one's character, soul, if I may use an old fashioned and highly charged word, these ideas have fallen out of fashion and perhaps even become a little suspect or disreputable. And that I think is a, is a shame because it casts in doubt all of the things, most of the things that I have found to be of greatest value in my own encounter with the humanities over 50 years of time. Second threat, and this is the last thing I'll say before, um, uh, before breaking off. I emphasize this less in education's end than I do in the assault on American excellence. The second threat is the politicization of higher education across the board, which today is proceeding with the, the force and speed of a hurricane. 
we are all being drafted into a political uh, program. Uh, it is increasingly difficult to think of our colleges and universities as anything but adjuncts to uh, a partisan political program um, motivated by a perfectly legitimate, respectable uh, interest in uh, promoting the, the fairness and justice of our existing political and social institutions. But this program today refuses to let higher education alone. It penetrates every nook and cranny of study. It has had a particularly a dramatic effect on the humanities, which are vulnerable because they have to do with uh, judgment, with, uh, with, uh, with, uh, with values, uh, with politics, and they are ripe for political uh, expropriation and uh, takeover. This wave of, 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 uh, of uh, uh, evangelical politicizing is today threatening to transform the humanities out of all recognition, the classics, history, philosophy, uh, and to render completely uh, indefensible the old fashioned idea that studying the humanities is valuable for its own sake as a, as a, as a, as a form of uh, refinement of cultivation of soul development and to uh, depreciate that notion and make it uh, politically suspect. So anyway, that is uh, today, I think the principal danger uh, that uh, those of us who care about uh, the enduring perennial value of the humanities need to resist. Though I think even if we are able to fight it back, the dangers posed by specialization and the research ideal, which in some ways strike deeper, will remain and have to be addressed. Well, I've gone on longer than I meant to. I've said more than I intended. I apologize for that. Uh, um, I will just stop at this point and, uh, and we can devote the rest of our time together to a conversation. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you, uh, Professor Croman. Thank you so much. And uh, as you doubtless know from the teaching, the hardest question is the first question. After the first question is asked, there will be a flood, I know. So uh, let me see if uh, anyone is early in the morning. And if not, I will call on someone. Okay, Jonathan, why don't you come up here? <coughs> Microphone. And I guess you're looking at that camera. Just introduce yourself briefly. Thank you again for uh, taking the time. My name is Jonathan. There you go. So you probably hear me better now. Um, th thank you again for taking the time. Uh, my name is Jonathan Bullis. I'm actually a graduate business student, but taking this course because I'm interested in the, in the topic. And um, I'm somewhat insecure about this question, so I'm going to admittedly hedge a little bit as I ask it. Uh, but I had a thought that kind of has come up a lot of times in reading books and books that explore similar topic that the, and my mask is about to rip, I can hear it right now, but um, that the emphasis of kind of the need for personal formulation and the lack of moral order in the beginning of the book is the end of the um, 
of where we are right now with education, not a predictable outcome of that, you know, it, and you know, that if we uh, allow, or, or is the Western canon so profound that truly explored, it leads to a true exploration of the meaning life as opposed to a reductionist view of it as, you know, whatever the research ideal is. Well, th thank you, Jonathan. Um, I, I, I do think that a thoughtful engagement with the classical works that are uh, generally um, in, uh, thought of as forming the canon of uh, Western literary uh, and uh, philosophical studies I, I think that a thoughtful encounter with these books, beginning with the, the Greeks and the Romans, cannot help but stir in the, uh, the student, or the teacher for that matter, who may be reading them for the nth time, questions of uh, an intensely personal kind. Uh, uh, about how one wishes or chooses to live. What does one um, want to make of that very precious resource that we call a lifetime? Um, you know, there, there's a passage, I quoted, I think, in Education's End, a passage in Plato's Republic that made a very profound impression on me when I read it for the first time many years ago. Uh, Socrates and his students are discussing um, a very abstract philosophical question about the nature of justice. And um, one of, one of the, the young men with whom Socrates is conversing says, you know, Socrates, this seems like a very important subject, a very serious one. And Socrates turns to uh, his interlocutor and says, indeed, it is a serious question. It is the question of how to live. And all of the books uh, that make up the, uh, the Western canon put this question to the reader in one form or another, some more directly than others, but you can't read Hobbes, Mont Montaigne, uh, Kierkegaard, uh, Augustine, Kant, uh, on and on and on, Tolstoy, uh, Virgil. Uh, you can't read any of them without coming to this question. So the text always leads back to the reader, and the question that it puts to the reader is one that forces introspection and a more thoughtful and responsible engagement with the question of what to make of the precious resource of life that we've been given uh, and that doesn't last forever. We need to do our best to figure out how to spend it or, or use it or enjoy it. And that question never goes out of fashion. How could it? As long as there are human beings, that question will be at the very center of any uh, uh, intelligent and reflective encounter with the human condition itself. Um, to the extent the research ideal puts that question off to the side, it doesn't deny its existence, but it depreciates it. 
it puts it out of the spotlight. It makes it um, a question to be answered, not in the classroom, but uh, in the privacy of one's own apartment uh, after hours. Uh, 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 and uh, that to me, I, I, that view deprives the student of the opportunity to consider in a conversational forum with others wrestling with the same question, what this text means and, and, and where it leads so far as the question of the meaning of life is concerned. Hello, uh, Professor. Um, my name is Keegan. Um, I'm a business student here. Uh, so, sorry about this. This question's a tad long, but um, so in religion, there is some sort of regulatory influence uh, within Christianity. It's Bible, church, some kind of moral order. I'm having a hard time hearing. Could you increase the volume a little bit? The volume. <clears throat> Can I repeat the question? Sorry. Yes. Okay. Uh, so in religion, there is some sort of regulatory influence, uh, specifically uh, with Christianity. It's, it's the Bible or the church. Um, and in your book, you praise secular humanism as essentially necessary within a pluralistic society to go back to this uh, better understanding of the humanities. However, by atomizing the search for truth, which it seems that secular humanism seems to do, uh, it tends to value it. So my question is, does secular humanism have some sort of um, standard with which it can kind of prevent the, uh, I guess, political correctness or research ideal from kind of seeping into it? Yeah. Well, that's a that's a, a, a challenging question, and uh, uh, might lead us in any one of a number of different directions. Um, let me start with the following observation: um, the great religious traditions, as we know them and think about them, uh, share in common. Uh, underneath their diversity of approaches, beliefs, institutions, a, uh, a, a fundamental preoccupation. And I would describe that in the following way. Um, every religious teaching inst offers instruction about the relationship between time and eternity. We live in time, we are mortal beings. Uh, we know that our lives will come to an end. The knowledge that we will die separates us in the most radical way conceivable from our beloved animal friends who are mortal like us, but don't die. I mean, but, but don't know that they will die. 
And that knowledge itself, the knowledge of our mortality, arouses in every human being the question, what is the relationship between my life, which doesn't last, and, and, uh, and, 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 and a world or a God or something um, uh, uh, that lasts forever? Christianity answers that question. Judaism, uh, Islam answer it too. So does Buddhism. The secular humanist is uh, preoccupied with that very same question too. That question properly lies at the center of humanistic studies, just as it does uh, at the Part of every religious tradition. The difference is that within a religious tradition, the followers, the believers, the adherents take certain fundamental premises um, as fixed. Uh, they start from an agreed uh, uh, point of belief and work out of you of the relationship between time and eternity from that perspective. Humanistic education, as I think about it, uh, addresses the same question. How is time related to eternity? How is my mortality related to immortality? What is immortality? What does it mean? What form does it take? Humanistic inquiry uh, addresses the same question, but without any fixed starting points of shared belief or conviction. So in a way, it's freer than every religious tradition, and yet in another respect, resembles them in its preoccupation with the same orienting uh, question or, or inquiry. Um, I, I might, if I were asked to describe in a very summary way what the organizing theme of the directed studies program in which I teach at Yale is, I might say, it is an exploration of the variety of ways in which great thinkers, some religious, some not, over centuries of time in the West, have conceived the relationship between time and eternity, mortality and uh, immortality, and give and, and the program is meant to give the students in it so many different options for thinking about this relationship, while at the same time riveting their attention on the question itself and making it emphatically clear that you cannot live uh, a meaningful, uh, rich, uh, thoughtful human life without attending to the question of the relationship between time and eternity. Um, I'd like to offer the opportunity for those who are viewing online. If you would like to pose a question after we get a few more questions from our students, why don't you indicate that maybe in the chat box? Uh, I would ask that, um, uh, I hope that you ask a question on the basis of your reading of Professor Crouch's book. That would uh, help for us. Next uh, is Maggie Garnett. 
Thank you so much, Professor. Um, my name is Maggie Garnett, and I might I might out my objection by saying I'm a theology major here. Um, I guess I'm wondering, in your chapter on secular humanism, you talk about this idea that there's a decline of doctrinal or dogmatic tradition that left the world trying to grapple with the question of meaning without the presence of God. Um, and I guess I'm wondering if you think that that is progress, that sort of dogmatic traditions are holding less weight, or if it's kind of creating this crisis or a hole that needs to be filled by a secular humanist tradition. And if so, how does secular humanism become something distinct from religion rather than just religion under a different form? Yes, good. Okay, thank you, Maggie. Um, uh, Uh, every American college, well, nearly every American college, was for a very long time uh, uh, a, uh, not just an educational institution, but a religious one as well. Um, its program of study was embedded within uh, a, uh, uh, a, a set of uh, shared and unquestioned uh, beliefs about uh, 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 the truths of religion and uh, the point or purpose of the program was to secure the students in their uh, religious beliefs to ground those and strengthen them and, uh, 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 and to uh, re reaffirm in that way the uh, specific dogmatic premises of the tradition to which the students and faculty belonged. Uh, in, in virtually every case, a Christian tradition. Uh, when uh, uh, the theological underpinnings of the of the of the old time American college weakened, and the educational program that had once rested on those underpinnings was set loose. A question arose that hadn't existed before: What is humanistic study for? If it's not to confirm the student in his or her a Christian uh, a belief, um, if it's been set loose from that, what is, it, uh, what is its purpose or, or aim? And as I've come to see it, um, the, the purpose of humanistic learning uh, is to uh, deepen the student's engagement with a question that is religious in character uh, uh, after the older religious answers to that question had lost their claim to authority. I can put it in a slightly different way. In the old time college, a question was it was asked and answered. 
within a framework of accepted belief. That's what I mean by dogmatic. When the framework ceased to be accepted as a, uh, uh, as a norm, uh, a set of norms that was simply taken for granted, the questions didn't disappear, but the older answers to them would no longer do. So humanistic education, the tradition of secular humanism, as I call it in the book, is an attempt to find a new answer uh, to a question that has survived after the older answer has lost its credibility. But the question retains its, if I can put it this way, the, the, the question continues to sound, to reverberate in a religious register insofar as it is centered on the relationship between time and eternity, between mortality and immortality. I can think of no more uh, fundamentally religious question than that, but even after the re specifically uh, religious answers to it uh, uh, have been uh, uh, bracketed or put aside or converted into personal beliefs, the question remains worthy of collective study in an educational setting. And, and it is at the organizing center of secular humanism as I, under, as I understand it. So Maggie, if I could just add one more note, this, this view puts me in an uncomfortable position between my, uh, uh, my uh, orthodox friends to one side, by which I mean my many friends who subscribe wholeheartedly uh, to one religious tradition or another, and uh, they see my secular humanism as a weak and unsatisfying substitute for uh, a need that only uh, religion can authentically provide, an attempt to fill a gap that can't be filled except uh, in, uh, uh, in, a, in a more straightforwardly religious fashion. So they don't like the idea. And then my, my secular friends, my thoroughgoing secular friends say, you are just, uh, try, you're importing a religious preoccupation under another label. And I don't like that. I wanna get religion out of the picture all together. So I find myself awkwardly stranded in the middle between believers on the one hand and uh, and, uh, and 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 the and, and the radical naysayers on the other, trying to maintain the importance to affirm the importance of a question, uh, while at the same time uh, denying the authority of the answers that established religious traditions give to it within an, within a uh, uh, you know a program of humanistic study in a in a college or university that does not itself have a, a direct and deliberate sectarian um, uh, uh, mission as some of course do take advantage of my role as professor of this class 
it ought not to surprise you that you're receiving a few questions from some of our students about, in particular, the argument of your book relating to secular humanism as, in some ways, the kind of the ideal moment in the history of American higher education, as you describe it, roughly between the beginning of the 20th century, the early 20th century, until maybe the 1960s, 1970s, when you see the, you know, the real, um, the rise and, and uh, the beginning of the domination of the research ideal, closely followed by uh, the period you describe as political correctness, uh, those two threats to higher education. And it wouldn't be surprising then for students at a place like Notre Dame, which remains by your telling, still defined by the ethos of the first period of American higher education, the age of piety, that um, you describe, and I think you've reiterated today, as an age in which there's a kind of dogmatism, uh, a kind of single-minded and static view of religious belief and faith in which students' heads are opened and doctrine is poured in and then sealed up tight, that there was probably a bit of a pushback uh, to, toward that view. From within this institution, I would say we have an extremely robust and deep and profound encounter with the question of the meaning of life precisely because we're a Catholic institution. And this kind of static view of religious belief that you present in your belief in your book about the age of piety really doesn't, it seems to me, grapple with the fact that religious traditions like this one, and I think most, I, I dare say all religious traditions, have a whole set of internal questions that make the question of the meaning of life and the meaning of the afterlife that, that temporal horizon you describe in a way inescapable. So let me, let me present you with an alternative telling of your story, which begins not with the founding of America and the founding of Harvard University as the beginning of the age of piety, but begins with the founding of the very first universities in Europe, the University of Paris, the University of Bologna. In other words, you have at least a thousand years, if not more, of higher education that you describe as the age of piety that stretches far back. You mentioned Oxford and Cambridge as the models of Harvard and Yale, uh, that, that there's a very long and ancient tradition. And then you have a very brief moment that you describe as the age of secular humanism in which the effort collectively to, to search for the meaning of life in a way that's defined by a community of fellow seekers in which we attempt to, 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 to understand what the meaning of life is that we share and that we can share as a, as a community of human beings becomes individualized as you describe it. And I think that's what attracts you to the age of secular humanism. Each person gets to define the meaning of life for themselves. But this becomes an extremely unstable moment precisely because the meaning of life is not merely an individual pursuit, of course. It's something that it seems to me has to be touch on our relationships to other people in a community of fellow seekers. And so it's not surprising that this really becomes a transitional period to precisely those two crises that you mentioned today, both of which in some ways arise from the individualistic nature of the age of secular humanism. They both have to do with the desire to advance human power, the power over the natural world, especially through the STEM disciplines, the, the, the ideal of the research university to afford us the ability to control the natural world, and of course, the power that we see in the rise of political correctness, the effort, uh, I think, especially uh, to assert a kind of power through the, uh, you know, a kind of ideal of what, of what identity is, uh, of what, of what the, uh, the, 
uh, the claims of our specific identity is against other identities. In other words, that we're increasingly a kind of tribal institution defined by the assertion of power, a kind of Nietzschean uh, institution. So the story I would tell would actually track your story, but lead to a very different conclusion that what you see as the ideal, in fact, was a, a kind of unstable transitional moment that was destined not to last very long. And that we should really be looking to institutions like Notre Dame as places that still preserve the deepest values that you seem to affirm, but that you, it seems to me, insufficiently recognize precisely because I think you have a, a too static uh, view of what, of what uh, piety, faith, uh, and religion is. So uh, 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 perhaps a long question, but, but one that I hope uh, is, is, uh, provides some opportunity for exchange. Great. Th th thank you, Patrick. It's actually three or four different uh, questions, and any one of, one of which would be a, a wonderful uh, subject for an hour's conversation or a lifetime's uh, conversation. Let me just uh, pick out a couple of themes and respond to them. In individualism, um, uh, uh, I am uh, an individualist in one sense and not an individualist in another. Uh, the, 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 the question of how one ought to live, of what makes for fulfillment and significance in a, in a life well-lived. This is a question that comes back to each of us in an excruciatingly personal way. I can't answer the question for you. You are the final decision maker in the sense that uh, it, will, it will be up to you at the end of the day to, uh, uh, to save yourself or throw yourself away. Um, it's not a collective decision, it's an individual decision. But I reject the idea, as I uh, suspect you do too, that uh, the decision I make is justified and validated merely by the fact that I make it, that, uh, 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 that uh, I am uh, entitled to say to you, I've chosen my way, you go choose yours. Uh, I really have no justification that I need to offer, and I have nothing uh, to learn from what others have to teach me. And uh, in uh, particular, it is, a, it is a path of isolation that I am following. It's not a collective or collaborative uh, in, endeavor. Individualism in all of those senses, I emphatically reject. Second, maybe more importantly, I feel so much more at home in the company of faculty like you and students like yours than I do in most other institutions because the question, uh, uh, the questions that preoccupy me are alive and well. And uh, I uh, don't feel at all constrained in this conversation or others uh, like it that I've had um, at, at other with faculty and students at other schools like Notre Dame, 
I don't feel at all constrained in expressing my views uh, 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 or inhibited in responding to what others say in, in re reply. Um, I feel so much more at home than I do in the, the arid world of, uh, of utter disinterest in this question, which is the, uh, the, 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 the predominant mood or atmosphere on most American campuses today. Give me any day an environment in which uh, uh, people are grappling seriously with the question of the relationship of, uh, of mortality to immortality, of time to eternity. Um, there, at least, there is the, the soil on which to have a conversation. Um, uh, um, I so you touched on so many other things that I am tempted to go on, but I think I'll just stop there because I suspect there are others in the queue who want to get in. Thank you very much, Patrick. Another Patrick. <laughs> Welcome to the land of the Irish. <laughs> yes. Um, so this is a question which follows on. I think the first thing you said. Trying to figure out which camera to look at here. Uh, but also follows your discussion of constructivism at the end of the fourth chapter of Education's End, and specifically how constructivism under secular humanism has to navigate this sort of productive tension between the individual's choice of meaning of life or life path having to be individual, but also being accountable to some external ideal. ideal. But it, or having some sort of intrinsic value uh, apart from the individuals making the choice. But the question here is a practical one. If you have a freshman undergraduate student who comes in and is interested in pursuing this uh, manner of education, how do you expect, realistically, uh, such a student to make those initial judgments about the kinds of life paths that have intrinsic value um, or don't prior to, but necessarily prior to, their engagement with the secular humanist ideal? And if, like me, you think it's most likely that they will make these judgments, at least initial judgments, of what life plans have intrinsic value or not based on initial religious presuppositions, does it then become the role of the professor under secular humanism to divest them of these pre-existing beliefs and notions? Good. Thank you, Patrick. Um, I, divest, divest puts it too, too strongly. Yes, of course, uh, my Yale College uh, uh, students come in with all sorts of convictions and presuppositions about what's good and true and, and, and worthy. And, <coughs> excuse me, we read together texts that put uh, these convictions, or some of them uh, at least, in question. And um, the, the, the process of learning is one of mutual adjustment. Um, my students don't come in as, as, as blank sheets and then learn uh, about life by reading Plato and Aristotle and uh, Augustine and, uh, and Descartes. Um, uh, their, their beliefs are hopefully challenged, refined, uh, 
uh, cultivated by their engagement with these texts, which is shaped from the very beginning by these presuppositions themselves. So there's a back and forth process of mutual adjustment. And at the, at the end of the day, some convictions may be abandoned completely. More often, they are subtly uh, refined and, uh, uh, and, uh, and, and deepened. They become richer in the, the process. I, I would think it presumptuous of me as a teacher to ever tell a student or even to suggest that they should uh, throw out whatever convictions they have brought with them as a 17 or 18 year old to their first year in college. What right would I have to do that? But by the same token, as a teacher, when a student uh, offers, uh, uh, makes a, a statement in class, uh, which uh, rests on assumptions that are unstated, my responsibility as a teacher is to draw those assumptions out, to invite the student to uh, put on display um, uh, what the student is taking for granted and to be willing to subject those assumptions to uh, a, uh, uh, a charitable, friendly, but critical inspection in the classroom itself. And that's, that's hard work for, for all involved. It's hard for the student sometimes even to see what the presuppositions are. Harder still to allow them to be scrutinized uh, in a public light. It's hard for the teacher to do this in a way that is respectful and yet, and inviting uh, and yet, uh, 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 independent and, and, and critical. But out of that experience and the back and forth between the assumptions the student starts with and the, and the texts the student encounters come something deeper and, 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 and richer at the end of the experience. I'll give you just one example to illustrate this. Uh, and an and orthodox um, uh, 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 Jew or Christian or Muslim, a reader, a, a, a 17 or 18 year old, well-educated in his or her religious tradition, who's read Maimonides, who's read Aquinas, uh, who's read uh, 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 Avicenna and, and Averroes. Um, it comes to my class and reads Aristotle, maybe in a serious way for the first time. And they know that the religious tradition to which they belong has drawn deeply from the Aristotelian well. But I invite them to consider the possibility that Aristotle was right and that the world itself is eternal. The world itself is divine. It can't be uh, placed within a religious uh, a framework that demotes the world to being the creature of an otherworldly God who is now the entire possessor uh, 
of, of what is truly eternal and everlasting. I say, consider Aristotle's arguments for the eternity of the world. Do you think they're good ones or bad ones? And that's a dangerous uh, experiment, intellectual experiment for any orthodox student to, uh, uh, in, to uh, entertain because Aristotle is apostasy. If you embrace Aristotle, if at the end of uh, some period of reflection, you say yes to Aristotle emphatically, you must say no to Aquinas and Maimonides and Averroes and Avicenna. That is as radical uh, a, uh, a decision as, as, as any religiously motivated and inspired student can ever be forced to make. Um, there's a, you know, there's a modest example of how uh, uh, coming from, uh, 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 coming with a set of deeply held convictions about the nature of the divine, one can be put to the test and come away perhaps with a deeper, richer understanding of Aquinas, with a view that affirms the success of the Thomistic program of reconciling uh, 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 Aristotelian paganism and, uh, and, uh, and, and biblical revelation or rejecting the attempt as a, a noble but failed experiment and embracing paganism instead, as awful as that may sound. But wow, what a great adventure for any young person to undergo. Thank you. Um, Luke Thompson. Uh, hi. Oh, it is on, okay. Okay. Um, I think it's a testament to a greater conversation than we have that most of the questions I've thought of uh, were asked before I had the opportunity to come up here. But just as a kind of a follow-up to Professor Janine's uh, question that kind of uh, framed uh, secular humanism as a transitional period, uh, trans uh, traditional form of education in between a uh, more traditional religious-based education and the modern uh, form that you say uh, that you described. Um, uh, given that the pressures that kind of led to secular humanism's uh, demise from both inside and without, without the academy, the, the research ideal and the political correctness, um, given that these pressures are still here, is there any sort of uh, political, uh, ambient political conditions that could sustain secular humanism for a, a longer period of time, make it something more than a traditional period? Is there, is there something that needs to happen from outside the academy? Or is there a specific uh, uh, strategy the academy must take to try to sustain it, sustain secular hu humanism itself and resist the pressure from outside? Um, yeah, well, the, the, the humanities, thank you. Uh, the, the humanities um, are under enormous pressure uh, uh, these days to either conform to the research ideal or to uh, uh, permit themselves to be drafted into a, a, a program uh, of uh, political uh, rectification and social justice. Humanistic study in the way I conceive it and defend it in my, my book is at risk today of disappearing almost entirely uh, from the world of higher education, except in schools like Notre Dame, which uh, 
are, are able to protect and preserve it because, uh, precisely because of their enduring uh, commitment to an older uh, system of, of religious belief, which gives humanistic study an, an, an anchor uh, uh, and helps it to, to weather the storm. I'm not, to be, to be candid, uh, I'm not terribly optimistic about the future so far as humanistic study is concerned. Everywhere I look, uh, uh, I, I see it in retreat. Um, I, I was just a couple of weeks ago reading uh, uh, an exchange among distinguished classicists um, uh, 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 reacting to the, 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 the challenge that has been brought to the whole field of classical uh, studies by a group of uh, classics professors who characterize the study of the Greek and Latin classics as nothing but, uh, you know, Western uh, uh, colonial uh, racist imperialism. And they want to either destroy the field or have it refashioned. And my heart just sank. Um, what, what will become of classics in 20 years or, or 25 years? So, you know, in my more pessimistic <clears throat> moments, I sometimes fear that I'm living in the end days so far as humanistic study is concerned. Um, programs like the directed studies program at Yale uh, still survives. Uh, it's uh, tolerated. Um, no one is suggesting that it be dismantled. Uh, um, it, but... Uh, it remains under scrutiny, under suspicion. Those of us who teach in the program are constantly on the defensive, having to justify what we do and how we, we do it. And I don't know how much longer this can continue, really. Uh, there will always be a few places where uh, the uh, humanities survive, but it, it may be only under the protective umbrella of religious uh, institutions of higher learning that give it uh, the, the oxygen it needs to breathe after that has uh, ceased to be the case in secular uh, colleges and, and, and universities. Um, uh, you know, one other thing I would mention this is, this is really the, one of the main themes of the assault on American excellence. The, the, the political movement that today demands the internal reform of our colleges and universities is motivated above all else by a commitment to the principle of equality. Equality is a great thing, but it has a leveling impact. The humanities cannot do without the idea of excellence, distinction, refinement, cultivation of lives better and worse lived. And uh, they are by their nature hierarchical and therefore vulnerable to attack 
in the name of the leveling program of equality that uh, one sees everywhere on American campuses today. So uh, if the humanities are on the defensive, it's in part because traditionally they have defended the idea of excellence in living. And that idea today is suspect to a degree it has never been before. Tony, we have about 10 minutes left. Um, so what I'd like to do, we have a couple of people from online who'd like to pose questions. Um, before we take those questions and you can offer us some final responses, I would like to thank the Program of Constitutional <coughs> Studies, the Tocqueville Program, and the Program of Liberal Studies for sponsoring this event today. Uh, obviously paying for your airfare, hotel, and restaurants uh, was, was expensive, but nevertheless, they are. <laughs> possible today for you to come in and join us. So thank you to those, um, thank you to those sponsors and my colleague and friend, uh, Professor Munoz in particular, Soren Hansen, who's handling the technical side here. Um, so we'll go in the following order. Um, uh, Veronica, um, Veronica Martinez would like to ask a question and then another Garnett, uh, perhaps known to you, Professor Rick Garnett from our law school uh, would also like to ask a question. Hello, um, hopefully you can hear me. Um, so thank you so much. Okay, good. So thank you so much um, for this talk. Um, it's been really interesting. You know, bouncing back on, I think your last comment or part of the response you just gave. Um, I wonder, so in your book, in your book on, um, uh, in your, in, your, in your most recent book, you say college education is under attack from all sides, or the blurb says, most um, college education is under attack from all sides these days. Most of the hand-wringing over free speech, safe zones, trigger warnings, and the babying of students has focused on the excesses of political correctness. And then you were talking about how you feel like you have to be defensive when you want to talk about why it's really important um, for certain um, classics within the humanities to be taught. But I wonder if there's not a bit of hypocrisy in that statement. So um, I would disagree with your suggestion that the move towards equality is a move towards leveling. And what I really think you mean by that is a decreasing and diminishment of standards and a move against excellence. I, I don't think you have to sacrifice excellence for equality. Um, but I do think there is some sort of hypocrisy in the idea that you don't want one set of, you think that it's problematic for one set of discussions um, to occur and to be negotiated in certain ways. And then other sets of discussions, you're like, well, I don't really want to have that discussion. Um, and so I wonder if there's a hypocrisy there. I also wonder, though, about your critique of the humanities, right? So, and your critique about political correctness. So I certainly agree with you that it is likely the case that public education, that higher education in this country has shifted dramatically since the 1960s when women and people of color started entering into educational of higher education. Um, but I think a more fundamental question is what would those educational institutions that you're trying to harken back to have looked like if they had always allowed women and people of color to be a member of their organizations, right? Are you harkening back to a time that just isn't possible because we've, in, we've embraced an understanding of what education should be to include women, to include, include people of color. And might the political correctness that you're concerned about actually just be an, a natural consequence of changing our educational institutions from those that only included white men to those that include a whole vast array of individuals with different perspectives and ideas. Thank you so much for being here. 
Good. Th thank you. Thank you. Well, uh, <clears throat> the the, uh, the 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 college that I went to more than fifty years ago was shamefully exclusionary, and it was worse on account of who it didn't welcome in as a fully equal uh, participant, fully equal participants in the educational uh, adventure. So I am all for throwing the doors open wide. Indeed, uh, <clears throat> I'm enthusiastically in favor of taking affirmative steps to see that members of groups who historically have been excluded from the uh, the, 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 the privileges and the opportunities of higher education be invited, uh, be invited in. Uh, I'm, I'm an enthusiastic uh, proponent of affirmative action, if one means by that, making a special opportunities available to those who have been denied any opportunity, uh, opportunity in the past. What um, I am uh, against is uh, introducing uh, the a program of, of um, of, uh, of social and, and political uh, uh, equalization into the very substance and content of the educational program of the humanities itself. Here's where the rub comes. You know, there, <clears throat> there's no contradiction between saying our schools should be open to talented uh, young people of, 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 of every race, uh, uh, regardless of their their gender, their sexual orientation, their ethnicity, anything else. Of course, that's true. And there's no obvious incompatibility between that and a commitment to excellence within most disciplines. Why should there be any tension between recognizing excellence in mathematics and economics and, and, uh, uh, and uh, physics on the one hand, and throwing open the doors of our colleges and universities to all talented applications, applicants on the other. No tension at all. But if, if one says by excellence, I mean not just how, how well you do on uh, uh, tests and other measures of performance that have some objective validity, but when we're talking about excellence in living, in the quality and richness and depth of your life, that to many sounds like the invocation of an old hierarchical norm uh, that is antithetical to the principle of equality, the, the, the contemporary principle of equality it's, itself. But I dispute that. I think equality should mean an equal chance to discover and participate in excellence in living. And excellence in living is distinctive by definition. It sets those who have achieved it, uh, realized it, uh, exhibit it, apart from those who haven't or have only to a lesser degree. But that sounds to many like a hateful kind of, uh, of uh, uh, hierarchy and subordination, which they reject root and branch as incompatible with their morality of equality. I want to put the two together in the way that 
Tocqueville did. Tocqueville's name has been mentioned. He's the namesake for whom the, uh, the program uh, in which we're, which I'm appearing today, isn't it? Tocqueville, Tocqueville believed, Tocqueville was a fan of American democracy uh, and of the principle of equality on which it rested. He also believed deeply that uh, the great danger of, uh, of, of, of American democracy is its tendency to level out the distinction between what is great and fine and rare on the one hand and what is banal and ordinary and coarse on the other and thought that the greatest challenge of the coming centuries in American life would be to preserve some sense of the latter, of the rare and excellent in an increasingly egalitarian civilization. How can you have your cake and eat it too? And his great book on America is devoted to that question. And he looked in particular to our colleges. There were no universities when he wrote, to our colleges as institutions for the protection and preservation of some notion of excellence uh, in a, uh, uh, in a, uh, a world increasingly governed by the principle of strict equality. And I'm with Tocqueville. I see the problem in the light he did and uh, am drawn to the same uh, uh, kind of, how should I put it, re remedial solution that attracted him a hundred and uh, however many uh, years ago it was. So I'm with the Tocquevillian program in that regard. And then there's my friend, Rick Garnett. Hello, Rick. Hey, Tony. Thanks so much for being here. It's, uh, it's, sure. great, to, it's great to see you again. And I can, I can vouch to all the students um, what a wonderful job you, you did as a teacher. Um, was it not that many years ago, I suppose, uh, when you were standing Three or four. Ethel. Yeah, three or four. <laughs> um, this question's pretty pedestrian, so I apologize. But I just, um, you made a uh, kind of a quick reference a few minutes ago to perhaps being in the end times of uh, humanistic studies. And I certainly hope we're not. I wonder if you have any thoughts that you could share, even if they're kind of um, uh, just spitballing, but you know, what is to be done? That is, what, what, what are some concrete things that institutions of higher education can do in the current context uh, to try to um, reclaim, hold on to, invigorate, strengthen, um, humanistic study and, and sort of to, to resist the compartmentalization or the um, kind of utilitarian focus of uh, government funded research and, and so on. Is there any practical things that you'd want to um, suggest to university administrators or legislators? Um, modestly, uh, let those programs which have survived the maelstrom let them continue to exist and to uh, flourish and uh, to chart their, their own countercultural path. Programs like directed studies, leave it alone, let it be. Give us the resources we need to uh, hire faculty, to teach in the program and to recruit uh, students to it. But that's very modest, Rick. I, I think um, within the uh, in, uh, in, in increasingly constraining limitations of, uh, of uh, higher education today, it may be that the only path forward is one that starts afresh 
from outside this institutional framework all to, together. Um, if there were a handful of billionaire donors who were as uh, devoted to humanistic learning as I am and wanted to start a new college, a brand new college uh, from uh, scratch, well, I'd be interested in talking to them about how to do that and where to do it. it, it uh, it's a big challenge. You know, if you did it, would anybody, if you opened the shop, would anybody come? Uh, you know, um, uh, 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 the, the schools would become hopeless, still maintain a huge amount of prestige and applicants to Yale will uh, come uh, in enormous numbers just because it's Yale, regardless of the fact that its educational program has become hollow and, uh, uh, and, uh, and, and empty. But why not give it a, why not give it a try? Uh, and um, uh, if, if a, you know, a couple of schools of this kind it could be created and, uh, and, and acquire some national notoriety, for the simple old fashioned thing they were trying to do, it might have an effect. In any event, it would be awfully fun to try. So if there are any billionaires out there who share my convictions and uh, want to see if we can make a go of it, uh, uh, you have my number, <laughs> give me a call. But sh short of that, I say uh, uh, to those of you at Notre Dame, keep on doing what you're doing uh, wish us well, uh, those of us who teach in the directed studies program at Yale, and there are a few others like it, and we will hold on to uh, the saving remnants in the last of days. Tony, thank you. Uh, I think that's something that uh, we here at Notre Dame like to hear and need to hear, uh, that uh, we shouldn't just try to ape uh, Yale University. That's probably not the direction to go. Uh, we need to be our Don't do that. Don't do that, please. <laughs> I think rousing hurrah from, from our students. Uh, our students have had to leave a little bit because we're up against the hour, but, uh, uh, but thank you. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, I think it's, it was uh, for us uh, a, great, a great opportunity to speak with someone whose book has been a really meaningful part of our course. Uh, so we really appreciate it and hope that uh, we can invite you or have you host you soon here on campus. And it sounds like, you know, if, if things get really bad, maybe you should be talking to Professor Garnett about, uh, about Notre Dame Law School. <laughs> thank you again for being here. Well, if I could, Patrick, first I want to th th thank, you for the, thank you for the opportunity. It's been, a, it's been a privilege. I've really enjoyed it. But if I could take 10 seconds and put in a, a plug for my next book, which will come out at the end of the year or early next year, it's called After Disbelief. And, uh, uh, and it returns to some of the themes of our discussion here. And um, I, I suspect that uh, you and your colleagues and students may not like it, but you'll be uh, ho hopefully provoked by it. And that's a book I would love to come to South Bend to discuss. Okay, let's make it, let's make a deal and we'll, we'll have you here when, uh, when we're back open again. And uh, I look forward to the opportunity to meeting you in person. So thank you again for joining Wonderful. us. Wonderful. Thank, uh, thank you. Thanks. So thank much you. Students. And thanks to everybody who joined in. Take thanks, care. everybody.